Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us. I hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe entertain you a little bit as we go. I'm also going to just, you know, in the interest of fairness, disclose to you that uh, because I, like a lot of people around the world, am a massive soccer fan, I am actually watching a World Cup game as I record this. But don't worry, it will not detract from the quality of the podcast at all. It just means that you might hear me start to scream and shout in the middle of it for no apparent reason. Um, <laughs> with that said, uh, and thank God for the ability to stream things onto my phone in my office. Let's dive in. We are uh, in the, the we're in the closing stages of our one year Bible reading plan right now, uh, which means that even though I'm preaching on the Book of Revelation throughout the season of Advent, you're not actually reading it yet. We are reading uh, this week. We we wrapped up Daniel and we have started the Book of Hosea in the Old Testament. We're reading through uh, the the like the shortest letters of the New Testament now, right? The the, the, the one through three Johns, and then Jude, uh, these really, really short letters right before the book of Revelation. So you're going to read, uh, I believe we finished Jude at the end of the week. Yeah, and then next week we'll start actually reading uh, Revelation. And so again, this week I'm going to be uh, doing just kind of some high-level stuff on Revelation uh, to help compliment what I'm doing on Sunday morning, but I want to talk a bit about the book of Hosea, too. Um, I It's a great book. It's a great, great prophet. It's one of the... Once you get past, like, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, people don't pay attention to the prophets as much, but Hosea, you know, has, in the last 20 years or so, it, it does seem like Hosea... Apologies for that. Someone emailed me. Oh, how rude. Um... Hosea has kind of picked up a bit more attention in the last, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 years. Uh, people have kind of looked to it more as a, as a really interesting uh, prophetic text. Um, obviously, there's been movies uh, that, are, that are like a modern-day retelling of the book. I haven't watched it because, I don't know, it looks dumb to me, but apparently it's... My wife watched it and said it was good. I didn't have any interest in watching it. Um, but people have kind of picked up on the fact that this is a really interesting story, kind of a difficult story, right? I mean, Hosea is called to marry a prostitute, and this is, I mean, he's literally asked you to live out the prophecy that he is uh, he's sharing with the people. So, uh, you know, Ezekiel did some of this stuff, right? I mean, God asked Ezekiel to do things that, that were like these, odd, lived-out prophecies. Hosea is having to take it to a whole different level, right? He marries a prostitute um, who's going to be wildly unfaithful to him. And, and God tells him each time each time she is unfaithful to you, you have to go and bring her back. And the, the core of the story is God is saying, this is what I'm doing with you people. Uh, and all the pain that you, Hosea, feel, all the betrayal, all the hurt, uh, this is what I feel when you all abandon me. And so it, it can be a really difficult book to read, but it is ultimately a book about God's deep, unwavering love for us. In fact, it is a book that tells us that God is determined to love his people. 
no matter what. And I think that's an important way to phrase it, that God is determined to love us. It isn't just that God loves us. It isn't, it isn't just that it is in God's nature to love us and therefore he's compelled to love us. God has made the choice to love us. He is determined to love us. You might say God is stubborn. And so God chooses to love us no matter what. He is determined to love his children and therefore he is determined to bring his children back to him. It's not this is not by the way uh this is not a, a a justification for universalism, the idea that God saves everybody. I think I think the warnings in scripture about what happens to those who reject God are much too stark uh, to ever really justify an idea of universalism. But it does tell us that God relentlessly pursues us. He is determined to love us. No matter how many times we reject him, we always have the option to turn back. And I think most parents understand that kind of love with our children. We love them so deeply, so passionately, that no matter how many times they were to reject us, if they, if we have older kids who want to leave us behind and don't want to, to have anything to do with us, I think most of us, the instant they they called us up and said, actually, you know, I, I regret this and I would like to be part of your life again, we wouldn't hesitate to, to say yes. Um, but Hosea doesn't choose the metaphor of parent and child. Hosea chooses the metaphor of marriage. And I think it's important to understand that, that God's relationship with his people cannot be accurately compared to any one type of human relationship. It takes all human relationships to fully get grasp a, a full picture of how God relates to us. That, that includes parent and child relationships. It includes marriage. It includes, by the way, friendships. And this is something that we in the modern West have really failed to grasp. The idea of deep, intimate friendships, um, which are not sexual in nature. This is one of the most frustrating things I see uh, that people read back into history at these at people who have deep, deep friendships with people of the same sex, and they just assume, oh, this figure must have been gay. No, that's not how it works. It, it could quite honestly just be a deep, intimate friendship. That's a real thing that for most of human history has happened. Uh, and it's only in the modern West that we have so heavily over-sexualized our world that we've lost the idea of the deep, intimate, and fully platonic friendship. Um, and we need to reclaim that because that is actually a massive, massive part of understanding how God relates to us and how Jesus relates to us. But I'm getting off on a tangent now. Um, so the book of Hosea is all about God being determined to love his children, that God has deep, deep love for his children. And so with that, we dive into the book. Now, Hosea the prophet lived during very turbulent times. He is alive during the final years of the northern kingdom. So again, remember, after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits into, you have the northern kingdom, which retains the name Israel. Their capital is the city of Samaria, from which we get Samaritans. 
important to know during the Gospels. The southern kingdom remained centered on the capital at Jerusalem where the temple is, and that kingdom is called Judah. Judah will outlast Israel. Judah will be the kingdom that is conquered by Babylon where the people are carried off into exile. And so the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel deal with, well, Isaiah actually deals with both, but Jeremiah and Ezekiel deal with uh, Judah, as does Daniel. Although by his time, they've already been exiled. The northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrian Empire uh, almost 200 years. I think, I think it's something like 170 years before the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon. Um, and so Hosea lives during very, very turbulent times. This is the final days of the northern kingdom. Uh, another prophet, by the way, around who's alive around the same time is the prophet Amos, who we have not read yet, but we will read before the end of the year. Amos also lives during this time in the northern kingdom. Um, both men evidently escaped the coming destruction and fled south because their writings have been preserved. Um, now, Israel's rulers at this time are putting a lot of time and effort into political maneuvering and forging alliances with other with other more powerful nations. And they're doing this to secure their own provision, to secure their own protection, their own food supply, their own their own uh, sources of income. And they're doing all this, which tells which indicates, of course, that they are not relying on God for any of the things that they are supposed to be relying on God for. They are instead relying on their own abilities, their own uh, political savvy, and of course on their neighboring nations who are obviously Gentiles, which is a problem because Jesus hasn't come yet. The covenant is only with Israel. Um, this is a lot of problem. And, and, and this isn't just a theological problem, by the way. Um, all of this political maneuvering and alliances that they're making, this causes massive economic and social change for the people of Israel because the way you secure a political alliance back then is that you arrange for, uh, with, with nations that are more powerful than you at least, you pay them tribute. You secure their protection and their allegiance by giving them lots and lots and lots of money. And that means they have to raise taxes. And nobody likes it when taxes are raised. Um, so the taxes go up to much, much higher payments because, of course, they have to send all this gold to foreign nations. So it's not only that taxes are raised, but the, the, the increase in taxes, none of that money is getting reinvested in the local community or the local infrastructure. It's not going to help the poor. It is all going to foreign powers. In addition, right, so as this is going on, what, what naturally happens is that power becomes very centralized and concentrated in the central government. And as that happens, wealthy elites buy up most of the land, displacing the traditional owners, the traditional farmers who were growing food to feed not only their families, but their local communities. And then instead of growing those food crops to feed people, they plant cash crops so that they can continue to grow the economy, to continue to, to generate revenue, to, to have trade goods to sell and to have cash to give 
as part of those tribute payments. So there's not as much food being produced. There's all these cash crops being grown. None of that money is going back into the local community. Any surplus that happens, any surplus of food that happens to come along, any surplus of money that happens to come along, it's not being reinvested into the local community. It's all being funneled into foreign trade and tribute payments. And that leaves the poor to suffer the most. The rich can always just buy imported food. The poor are starving in the streets. And it's in this context in which Hosea is criticizing the leadership of Israel for distrusting the Lord's provision. And something that, that interesting that I, I, I've literally just come across uh, in, in doing some of my prep for this podcast, um, historians and archaeologists have, have in recent years begun to question how widespread the worship of Canaanite gods really was in Israel. Um, so you have throughout not only Hosea, but through the other books of the prophets and through First and Second Kings and even parts of Samuel, uh, you have these references uh, during, especially uh, in the during the reigns of all of the kings after King Solomon. You have references to uh, the widespread worship of Canaanite gods, uh, and and this, of course, is held up as one of the main reasons why God punishes the people of Israel with destruction and exile. Archaeologists have started to say this might not have been literal. Um, in other words, there's not a ton of evidence that this was going on. And that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But it could indicate, and this is why I get, this is so interesting, it could indicate that all these references to the worship of paganite gods aren't referring to literal events, but are a metaphor for Israel's lack of genuine faith and for their disloyalty to God. In other words, it might be part of an extended metaphor about saying, you know, you're going through the motions, you're going to the, the temple, you're pretending, in effect, to be faithful to the God of your ancestors, but you might as well be worshiping these pagan gods. Because that's how you're living. You're living as if this God has not cared for you. You're living as if this covenant does not matter. And the reason I find that so interesting is that would make a lot of these stories so much more clearly applicable to modern day Christians who tend to live as if God is not real, who tend to live as if God doesn't care. Most Christians live as if God is not real. I don't think that's controversial to say. And this book also gives us this really powerful object lesson of why obedience to God and trust in God matter. It isn't just about making sure we get to heaven when we die. It's actually about making the world a better place and protecting the most vulnerable. Because look what's happening to the poor in Israel as a result of the faithlessness of Israel's leadership. They are literally starving in the streets. There are real-world practical ramifications to faithfulness to God and to faithlessness to God. And that's the thing that's, that's all too easy to forget, and too many of our churches just gloss over that as if it's of no importance, or as if that was only true in Old Testament times. But it's not the case. Our entire 
system of values in the Western world is based on Jewish and Christian belief. It is, it's inextricable from those things. And what we're seeing a lot of now is people trying to take Judeo-Christian morals and values and separate them from the reality of God and the reality of Scripture. And it does not work. It's morally bankrupt when you do that, and it causes lots of problems. The division and hatred and disrespect in our culture for people who have different beliefs is actually a symptom of that. Because we decide, I'm right and you're wrong, and if everyone just believed exactly like I did, everything would be okay. But of course, that doesn't take into account the fact that only God can make things okay. And that only God knows the full truth with certainty. It's only by remembering that our values come from God that we also remember that we don't always get it exactly right. And we may be wrong about things, and we should always approach social and political issues with an air of humility. That the other side might actually be right about some things, and we just can't say for certain. And that humility breeds respect. So you see, when we begin to try and separate our moral and social values from the religious roots that they have, when we begin to forget the God who gave us the very values that we hold so dear, things begin to fall apart. And I love the way that Hosea gives us this, this wonderful glimpse into the heart of God. That the depth of his love for us is like that of a husband for a wife. And that when we abandon God, when we turn away from God, when we, when we reject God, the pain that God feels is like the pain of a husband whose wife has been unfaithful to him. And in the midst of that, God is determined to love us anyway. And he will seek us out anyway. And he will try to win us back. That's the message of Hosea. We'll move on again briefly, briefly, briefly to Revelation. Because you're not reading it yet. Um, which is part of why my sermons have really not gone past the fifth chapter of the book. So that we're not going too far in advance. But I... I I want to emphasize a lot that the book of Revelation is not a secret code for how the end times will go down. So much of what the book talks about is dealing with real historical events that John and his readers would have been familiar with. But it's also about revealing who Jesus is. Revealing what Jesus is doing. And so this is, this is again, you, I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm trying to make sure I mention this and hit this on Sundays, but I want to really emphasize that that this is actually ultimately what Christian celebrations of Christmas are about. Not what happened 2,000 years ago, but what 
that event 2,000 years ago signifies for our ultimate future. John's gospel opens with that beautiful phrase that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, the word became in flesh and dwelt among us and crucially, the word never stopped dwelling among us. Jesus ascends to heaven, but he sends the Holy Spirit right back down. He is still with us. When we celebrate the birth of Christ, we are not celebrating a one-off event that happened 2,000 years ago and didn't really change much. We are celebrating the beginning of God dwelling with us again. Like he did with the Israelites in the temple in Jerusalem, he does that now with each of us in our very bodies. God dwells with us. The God that is depicted in Revelation, the, the conquering hero, the defender of the faithful, the judge of evil, he dwells with us. We remind ourselves at Christmas every year of what God has done, but also of what he is going to do. We celebrate, we give gifts, we, we enjoy good food and good company because it is a foretaste of what is to come. That's what Christmas is. It isn't a celebration of history. It isn't just a nice warm fuzzy thing. It is a foretaste of our future. That's one reason I love it so much. It's one reason I... I this is like one of my favorite times of year because it is a foretaste of what our ultimate future holds for us. Joy, peace, happiness, generosity. Absolutely beautiful. Revelation is a book that as we read it should fill us with nothing but hope. And unfortunately, lazy theologians, bad teachers, have kind of ruined it. By, by completely missing the point of revelation and trying to le and leading people astray with their bad teaching. It's a book of hope. It's a book of hope. It's a book about what God is going to do, what God is already doing. But most of all, it is a book about God fixing everything. The God who came to earth 2,000 years ago is going to come back, and when he does, all will be made right. You'll start to actually read the book next week. We'll continue preaching on it, though, the next couple of Sundays. That's it for this week, folks. We'll be back again next Wednesday with another podcast. Until then, God bless. And Merry Christmas.